and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. I am your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and looking at the front page of today's Gazette, private tuition. While some see a choice, others see a curse. There's more than one article about this subject. The first is entitled Private Tuition by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. An infusion of hundreds of millions of dollars every year soon could hit the private school market in Iowa, thanks to a proposed state-funded private school financial assistance package being pushed by Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican state lawmakers. That money could have a significant impact on the private school industry in Iowa, which as of the 22-23 school year included 183 schools and 33,692 students, according to state education department data. That's about 7% of the 486,476 students in the state's public schools. But could that impact be limited in who would benefit? Nearly half of Iowa's 99 counties, 42, do not have a private school within their borders. Most of the areas where there are no private schools are in rural areas with fewer and smaller towns. And many private schools are near or at capacity and would find it difficult to add students. The proposal, which likely will be debated this week in the Iowa House and Senate, is to offer state funding to any Iowa student who wishes to attend a private school. The student would receive $7,590 every year to be put toward tuition, textbooks, classroom materials, and other types of educational programming expenses. The program would be open first to new kindergartners, students who didn't attend a private school a year before, and students from low-income families. It would be gradually phased in, becoming available for more private school students until, in the fourth year, it would be available to all K-12 Iowa students. At full implementation, the governor's staff has estimated, the program will cost the state more than $340 million annually. A Republican legislator who chairs the Iowa Senate's Budget Committee said last week he believes that number will actually be higher. The state's nonpartisan fiscal analysis agency has not yet completed its analysis of cost and cost projections for the proposal. Some have suggested the new money pouring into the private school industry could lead to the creation of more private schools. Over time, quite possibly, said Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, which lobbies state lawmakers on issues that are important to the Catholic bishops in Iowa, I think over time as those resources become available for families, there could be expansion. Florida's private school financial assistance program, one of the first in the country, was established in 1999. From the 2000-2001 school year to 21-22, the number of private schools in Florida has increased 53%, according to data from the state's education department. Private school enrollment has increased 19.3% over that same period. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford, last week said the creation of expanded or new private schools in the state is definitely a possibility under the proposal. Obviously, there are some available slots that exist right now, but there could be more, Grassley said, but I also look at that as more competition, creating more choice for parents. So that may be a byproduct, but I don't think it happens just today. But over the course of time, I think it's a real possibility. It's just like in the public school system right now. We have schools that have reached a certain capacity that will only take students that are living within their border because they've reached capacity, Grassley said. So I think that's a conversation they'll have to have in each community. Trinity Lutheran, a K-8 school in Cedar Rapids that is accredited by the state and the National Lutheran School Association, has about 250 students, including the school's early childhood center. The school has 32 openings and is exploring options to expand, Principal Mark Miller said. We're running out of room and need more classrooms, Miller said. However, Miller said the school would not use money from the educational savings accounts for the proposed legislation to finance a building project. He said he supports the proposal, but it has very little to do with the financial benefit. I think there are kid, parents who would like to have their kids in our school because of how we operate that are not able to because they can't afford to, Miller said. Another article, Education Funding Boost But Not For All Public Schools by Grace King of the Gazette. One of, her, one of Jennifer Jordabrecht's favorite memories with her children is making rosaries, a prayer necklace, out of Cheerios for a school project. Her family has spent thousands of dollars to send its three children from a young age to Xavier Catholic Schools in Cedar Rapids, prioritizing a faith-based education. We appreciate how faith is interwoven throughout the entire school day. They start each class with prayer, and before football and basketball games, they say the rosary, Jordabrecht said. She is in favor of Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal, which would designate millions in public funding every year to help pay for students to attend private schools. 
Her two oldest sons graduated from Xavier High School, and her youngest son, Noah, is a junior there. Jorda Breck and her husband are paying about $7,000 this year for Noah's education at Xavier High, with the rest subsidized by their parish at St. Lubnilla Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Jorda Breck estimates the family paid up to $12,000 a year when all three of the boys were in the Catholic school system, with the cost fluctuating from year to year. An elementary and middle school costing less than high school. Jorda Breck, along with many other private school parents, says the program would give parents more choice in education and help them find a school that best fits the needs of their family. She said it has been at times a struggle to put three boys through Catholic school, but we don't regret it. We wanted them to be educated in the Catholic faith. As parents, we can use all the help we can get in raising our children, Jorda Breck said. Reynolds' proposal would allow parents to set up an education savings account that would receive $7,598 per student from the state, a student's full per-pupil funding at a public school that can be used for tuition, supplies, and other expenses at a private school. Reynolds' office estimates the bill would cost $106.9 million in the first year and by full implementation in the fourth year, $341 million annually. The Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency has yet to release its own analysis of the proposal. The state now spends a total of about $3.6 billion annually on pre-K-12 education, and public education advocates say it's not enough. School districts in Iowa have been asking the legislature for years to improve more aid, but lawmakers have been giving them only about half of what they sought. Now lawmakers are considering approving millions more, but not all of it for public schools. I understand where public schools are coming from, Jordabrook said. I firmly hope public schools can be fully funded and believe they should be. There are many wonderful public schools across the state, and I don't want to see them be negatively impacted. Opponents of the education savings account say the legislation will be detrimental to public schools, especially those in rural areas with already strained budgets. The measure would give public school districts an estimated $1,205 in funding from the state for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school, not only for students who choose to leave for private schools, but students who are already in them. Opponents say it's not enough. Angela Morrison, College Community School District Chief Financial Officer, said the money does little to minimize the impact the education savings accounts could have on public schools. You're still losing $7,500 for children who leave, she said. Calculating the financial impact on districts is difficult and depends on how many students either leave for private schools or who start there in kindergarten. Using the current numbers for the Cedar Rapids District, for example, the district would get about $2.2 million in new money for the 8,142 students who live in the district but attend private schools. Under that math, the district could lose about 340 students in a single year, taking into account the net loss per student of about $6,385 to break even with the proposed increase. After that, the district would lose money under the bill. Private schools don't have to admit students from a lower socioeconomic status who may not be able to afford private school even with the education savings account or students with learning disabilities or behavior problems, Morrison said. It's your right to send your student anywhere you want, but it's the public's responsibility to make sure we have strong public schools, College Community Superintendent Doug Wheeler said. We take all students. We take students that are difficult to help, and we persist with that for 13 years. Mary Kenyon, whose kids are a junior and freshman at Iowa City High School, said the extra money is a pittance compared with money private schools could receive. Iowa already has great school choice through open enrollment, Kenyon said. You can select any public school to attend if you're not satisfied with one you're districted to. I do not support ta taking taxpayer money and allocating it to private schools. Public schools have a promise to educate every student who comes through their doors, no matter their needs, Kenyon said, while private schools can cherry-pick students. Many parents of children in public schools say they don't want public dollars going to private schools. They also don't think private schools will welcome or be able to serve all students and their needs. Matt and Sarah Weibel's two children attend Hoover Community School, one of the most diverse schools in Cedar Rapids. Of the 420 students, 75% are historically marginalized students and 82% are economically disadvantaged and qualify for free or reduced lunch. Already, they are having conversations with their son Brandon, 11, a fifth grader, about racism. He's noticing that his classmates are treated differently because of the color of their skin and asking why, Sarah said. Their daughter Elizabeth, 8, a second grader at Hoover, is a special needs student and receives occupational and speech therapy services through the school. There is no way private schools could provide the level of services Elizabeth needs, Sarah said. When Matt had a baseball-sized brain tumor a few years ago, the school rallied around the family and the teachers donated gift cards and gas money.
The Hoover principal was the first person Sarah told about Matt's health outside their immediate family. Although Matt still struggles with daily migraines, extreme weakness, and tremors, he began volunteering at the school this year. Earlier this month, he worked one-on-one with kindergartners, helping them recognize letters and sounds. Sarah worries what will happen to Hoover's food pantry, clothing drive, and other community resources the school provides to the neighborhood if some money is redirected to private schools. Money for public schools needs to stay with public schools, Matt said. Eric Hunderdoss, parent to a kindergartner at Hills Elementary in the Iowa City School District, also values the diversity his daughter is exposed to at school. Is our child interacting with people who speak different languages, have different family dynamics, like two moms or two dads or grandparents who are primary caregivers, and from different socioeconomic backgrounds, said Hunter Doss, a former school counselor who now works for Panorama Education. That's something we value as a family. Turning to the Iowa Today, a news track catching up on an earlier story, as Iowans file taxes, which recent changes are in effect, by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Tax documents are beginning to arrive in Iowans' mailboxes, and soon those Iowans will be filing their taxes. State lawmakers have made many changes to Iowa's tax laws in recent years, particularly by reducing state income tax rates. So what should Iowans expect when they see their taxes this year and prepare to file? What's changed? Federal deductibility. While moving to lower state income tax rates, lawmakers also implemented a phase-out of Iowans' ability to take a deduction on their state taxes of their federal tax payment. But federal deductibility still lives for now. For the vast majority of Iowans, this will be the last year they can deduct their federal taxes while filing. Next year, for most Iowans, that option goes away. Income tax rates. The most recent state income tax overhaul, which was spearheaded by Republican state lawmakers, reduces state income tax rates over four years until it reaches 3.9% for everyone. But those changes did not start until January 1st of this year, so they will not show up on the tax returns that Iowans follow this year. For this year's tax returns, Iowans will have paid state income taxes at the old rates, covering nine brackets depending on one's income, ranging from 0.33 to 8.53%. Starting this year, Iowa will have just four tax brackets. The top rate is reduced to 6%, and descending income brackets will be taxed 5.7, 4.82, and 4.4%. That can be seen on paychecks now and will show up in next year's tax filings. Each year, those numbers will be reduced until 2026, when Iowa will have just one state income tax rate of 3.9%. The changes are expected to save Iowa income taxpayers nearly $2 billion annually, but also reduce the revenues that fund state government by that same amount. Similarly, Similarly, this year's tax filings will still include taxes paid on retirement income earned in 2022. This year's filings will not show another recent change. Starting January 1st, Iowans are no longer paying state taxes on retirement income. Those changes will be seen in next year's tax filings. And turning to the week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading in the news, lawmakers tee up private school assistance, a bill allowing parents to use taxpayer dollars to pay for private school tuition and expenses is set for floor votes in the House and Senate early this week. The bill quickly passed through committees in both chambers over the last two weeks. After passing through the legislature, the bill would go to Governor Kim Reynolds' desk for a signature. The program, which is estimated to cost $341 million once fully implemented, was one of Reynolds' key priorities for the session. Democrats urged those opposed to the bill to call their representatives over the weekend and voice their opposition. Sioux City woman charged with voter fraud. The wife of a Woodbury County supervisor was charged with voter fraud January 12th for allegedly fraudulently filing out voting materials and casting absentee ballots on behalf of others in two elections. Authorities say Kim Fong Taylor, 49, approached elderly members of Sioux City's Vietnamese community and filled out ballots and other forms in their names for the 2020 primary and general election, in which her husband, Jeremy Taylor, was a candidate. The FBI continues to investigate the case, according to a U.S. Justice Department news release. A trial was scheduled for March 20th in U.S. District Court in Sioux City. Bill Banning Gay Panic Defense Advances Lawmakers move forward a bill that would prevent a defendant from using a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity as a mitigating factor if charged with a violent crime or assault. It's the third time the bill has been under consideration. The so-called gay panic defense has been used successfully in other states, and some states have already banned it. Lawmakers try to fix depleted funds for veterans. A fund designed to give emergency financial assistance to Iowa veterans would get a boost under proposals from Iowa lawmakers. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund ran out for the first time in a decade in October. 
Separate bills would increase the annual allocation to the fund from $500,000 to either $800,000 or $1 million. Ransomware Cybersecurity Bills Advance Bills dealing with cybersecurity and ransomware moved forward in the Iowa House last week. One bill would make it a crime to launch a ransomware attack and provide penalties up to a Class C felony depending on the amount of money lost in the attack. Another would create a cybersecurity unit in the state's Office of the Chief Information Officer and require government entities to report cybersecurity incidents to the office. Top National Guard General to Retire Major General Ben Corll, the Adjutant General of the Iowa National Guard, will retire March 1st after more than 30 years in the Guard and three years at its helm. Corll said he has given his recommendation for his successor to Governor Kim Reynolds, who will appoint the next leader of the Guard. Under the heading, they said... I think we've come up with a really good bill here. I think the governor proposed a really strong bill that addressed any concerns that may have existed over the last two years in the debate that we've had. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley on Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal. Remind your legislators that we don't work for the governor, we work for constituents, so we're asking Iowans to let them know that and remind them that we are not here to do the governor's bidding, we're here to do the work of the people. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst on Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal. Under the heading, Odds and Ends, UI Hospitals Addressing Gap, University of Iowa Healthcare expects to open a new primary care location in Southeast Iowa City by 2025 in an effort to address a healthcare access gap in that area. Officials said Southeast Iowa City has the fewest primary care options in the city, despite being the most densely populated. Bill would scrap gender balance. A bill proposed in the Iowa Senate would eliminate the requirement that state and local boards and commissions have an equal number of men and women. A Republican senator said the requirement is no longer needed and said leaders have a difficult time filling open board positions. Under the heading Water Cooler, COVID Cases Fall, Iowa reported 1,690 COVID-19 cases Wednesday, a drop from the previous week. There were 177 people hospitalized with COVID-19 in the state, down from 222 the previous week. And Jeff Kaufman, re-elected GOP chair. Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman was unanimously re-elected last weekend to a two-year term as chairman. Since 2015, when Kaufman was elected to his first term, Republicans have increased their numbers in both state government and Iowa's federal congressional delegation. Turning to the Insight page, Help or Harm, a couple of guest columns. The first is an excerpt from Governor Kim Reynolds' Condition of the State Address on January 10th. According to the Gazette, we invited the governor's office to provide a guest column supporting the MOMS program, but received no response. So in this excerpt, Kim Reynolds says MOMS program can help connect pregnant women with support. As you can already tell, much of the focus of tonight's speech is on our children. On how we set them up for a fulfilling and productive life. But that task doesn't start when they're in grade school. It begins when life does, before the child is even born. That's why I fought so hard in the courts to make sure that this legislative body can do what it clearly has the power to do, protect the unborn. It's also why we created the MOMS program last year. When fully operational, the statewide network of nonprofits will connect women with pregnancy support services, including safety net resources, housing assistance, and recovery and mental health treatment. It sends a powerful message that a pro-life state is one that surrounds every person involved in a pregnancy, born and unborn, mother and father, with protection, love, and support. Every woman facing an unplanned pregnancy deserves to know she is worthy of this, that she is not alone. Just ask Sarah Herm. When she was 26 and a single mother to three, Sarah found out she was pregnant with number four. Her first reaction was to break down in tears under the stress. How would she ever make it work? What would people say? Looking for help, she called the father who told her they needed to be responsible adults. To him, that meant abortion. Feeling like she had no choice, she scheduled an appointment where she took the first pill to induce a chemical abortion. Immediately, she was filled with regret. She had heard the baby's heartbeat, and the sound replayed in her mind. It weighed on her when she picked up her children from school. How is this life different from theirs, she wondered, and it weighed on her when she went to bed that night. The next morning, she called the abortion pill reversal hotline, where help is available 24-7. And thankfully it was. The staff immediately connected her with a local doctor who administered a reversal that saved her baby's life. Today, Sarah volunteers at a pregnancy clinic that provides support to women facing unplanned pregnancies. She shares her story and her compassion with mothers who are facing the same decision she was. She helps give them the support that was missing for her, support that should be available to every expectant mother. Sarah and her children, including her son Isaiah, who is celebrating his fourth birthday tomorrow, are here with us tonight. 
Please join me in recognizing them for their courage to fight for every life. There's one aspect of Sarah's story I don't want you to miss. The father of her son was not there to support her. In fact, he did the opposite. It's impossible to overstate the importance of paternal involvement for mothers and children alike. One pregnancy support center estimated that 85% of their clients would carry their child to term if they had a supportive partner. Studies show that without a father present, a child is more likely to have behavioral issues, live in poverty, and die in infancy. With him, those indicators and others are reversed. Mothers are more likely to receive prenatal care, have a healthy birth, and experience less stress as a parent. Tonight, I'm calling on the legislature to expand the MOMS program to promote paternal involvement and address the needs of fathers. This new funding would allow us to provide nonprofit grants to assist at-risk dads, as well as mentorship for school-age males. This session and everything we do, let's promote strong and healthy families. And a guest column from Elizabeth Feldman. Elizabeth Feldman is identifying as living in Des Moines. Crisis pregnancy centers use shame and deceit to manipulate the vulnerable. At age 10, I found myself volunteering at an anti-abortion center after my mom signed me up as part of my homeschool curriculum. It happened after she found me reading ahead in my school materials about how our bodies develop and puberty. This so-called crisis pregnancy center used deceit and shame to manipulate vulnerable people looking for health care. Many people who walked into its doors were completely unaware of the center's mission. For six months, I listened to medically untrained staff say anything and everything to keep women from having abortions. If they wouldn't listen to the center's religiously laced propaganda, staff threatened to violate their privacy by calling family members or partners to expose the person's pregnancy and that they were considering abortion. These women were only seeking information and possibly help. The staff considered themselves to be heroic soldiers in the Army of Christ. For months, I saw firsthand the misleading tactics and intentional manipulation of pregnant people by the Crisis Pregnancy Center. No one should be tricked, coerced, shamed, or forced into giving birth if they don't want to. Not then, and certainly not now. Currently, I'm worried more Iowans are going to be fooled by these anti-abortion centers. Iowa politicians in power want to ban abortion. Now that the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned federal protection for abortion and the Iowa Supreme Court erased Iowa's constitutional protections for abortion, we are on the fast track to an abortion ban. It could happen through the legislature or through the courts, but our protections will be gone. As politicians work diligently to outlaw abortion, they tell Iowans that they are funding sexual and reproductive health care. That's not true. They are funding crisis pregnancy centers. Earlier this year, politicians approved $500,000 in taxpayer money to fund these anti-abortion centers. They sold it to their constituents as their answer to supposedly help struggling families. Now the governor is asking for another $1.5 million. Iowa's More Options for Maternal Support, or MOMS program, mirrors a Texas program called Alternatives to Abortion. It was created under the leadership of then-Deputy Executive Commissioner of the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, Kelly Garcia, who now oversees the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Texas lawmakers provided $5 million in startup funding its first year. Almost two decades later, it now receives $100 million a year, despite being ridden with fraud. It is yet to show results because it lacks any oversight. All of Iowa politicians like the program so much they invited Texas officials here to replicate it. Iowa elected officials are now leveraging the program in their march to ban abortion, saying it would help provide Iowans with necessities like formula and diapers and other support. Just to be clear, these anti-abortion centers are not licensed or subject to any kind of government oversight. My personal experiences at the center had an effect on my view of sexuality and abortion, leaving me terrified of sex and men because of the misleading and inaccurate information they spewed at both me and the unknowing people who came to them seeking help. I made rules for myself out of fear. I had to dress a certain way. I couldn't be friendly with men because it could be mistaken for flirting, and there had to be at least one other person in the room with me if I was talking to a man. It wasn't until I was older and exposed to more diverse people that I started to question the values that had been ingrained in me by both my family and the anti-abortion center. Things changed when I fell in love. He was 18, a year older than me. We were friends for two years before falling in love and eventually lived together. It took me more than two years to get over the guilt of having sex outside of marriage. Four years later, shortly after we broke up, I found out I was pregnant. As they would tell me at the crisis pregnancy center, unwanted pregnancy was a punishment from God for sinful behavior. I literally stayed up at night agonizing over the fact that I might go to hell. I carried a lot of shame and releasing myself from it was something that I had to put effort into overcoming. I prayed a lot. I slowly but steadily came to terms with the fact that the religion I had deeply committed myself to didn't make sense to me, nor did the false ideals that the anti-abortion center had ingrained in me. They weren't loving or accepting, and I didn't want to be part of it. I chose to have an abortion. After 
having an ultrasound, I was told my pregnancy was ectopic. In layman's terms, the fertilized egg had attached the outside of my uterus, which can be life-threatening. There was no chance of survival for the embryo. I'd already made the decision to have an abortion. This news just cemented it. It also helped ease some of the guilt I felt. Iowans, join me this spring by telling our elected officials, those elected to represent us, that we need to keep abortion legal in Iowa, not fake health centers that feed people information that is often medically inaccurate. And Todd Dorman writes, Republican crusade against kids continues. So the Republicans' crusade against transgender kids in school districts such as Linmar that offer those kids support is now out in paperback. Its title is sort of dry, House File 9, but it's a real page-turner. Under the bill, Linmar's policy of creating a support plan for transgender students, while leaving it up to those students as to whether their parents are informed, would be prohibited. There could be no plan to shield them from bullying and harassment without parental permission. No school employee could willfully withhold information from parents if they know a student is transgender or is transitioning. Lawmakers would turn trusted teachers into informants, cutting off a support system at school for marginalized kids who desperately need it. This is all done in the name of parents' rights. Never mind if a kid knows their home situation better than school officials or lawmakers, under the Golden Dome of Wisdom, now the Midwest subsidiary of DeSantis, Inc. As U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson said often during the campaign, kids belong to parents. Belongings don't have rights. In an ideal world, kids should feel comfortable coming out to their parents. I wish they all could, but the world is often far less than ideal for transgender kids. There are some parents out there who are not going to do the right thing when they get that information, said Keenan Crow, Director of Policy and Advocacy for One Iowa, an LGBTQ advocacy group. And we know that because just off the top of my head, about 10% of our youth population here in the U.S. is LGBTQ identified, but about 40% of our homeless youth population is LGBTQ identified. And that number goes even higher for trans folks in terms of their disproportionate portion there. So it's a very dangerous thing to out a kid. The information about someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity should be controlled. The flow of that information should be controlled by that person, regardless of what their age is, what their sex is, what their race or socioeconomic status. None of those things actually change that principle, Crow said. Turning adults at school into snitches rather than a possible source of support is also harmful. The one thing we know that dramatically decreases risk of suicidality for LGBTQ folks is having one supportive adult in their lives. Just one. That's all it takes to knock off a huge percentage of suicide risk. And in many cases, a teacher is that one person, and this would effectively take that away, Crow said. Crow cited a recent study from the Trevor Project, a group dedicated to preventing suicide among LGBTQ youth. Among those surveyed, 52% of transgender and non-binary youth in Iowa seriously considered suicide during the past year, while 22% attempted suicide. 87% of LGBTQ kids in Iowa said recent politics negatively affected their lives sometimes or a lot, and 73% of LGBTQ youth say they've experienced discrimination. But that's just how state house Republicans want it. They've declared open season on these kids. The bill, sponsored by 40 Republicans, fans those political flames. It bans school staff from encouraging, pressuring, or coercing kids to undergo medical procedures and treatments to affirm a student's gender identity. It's written in a way to be inflammatory and divisive and to make accusations that they couldn't possibly back up because that's not happening, Crow said. House File 9 is not the only anti-LGBTQ bill on the GOP agenda. House File 8 prohibits any classroom materials or curriculum that discuss sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K-3. through Senate File 8-3 bans lessons pertaining to gender identity through 8th grade. They're similar to Florida's infamous Don't Say Gay Law. It doesn't prohibit the student from coming in and discussing those issues themselves, but we're just trying to get back to we're going to let the kids be innocent, said Representative Skylar Wheeler, Republican Orange City, according to the Des Moines Register. Kids apparently can't be innocent and also receive age-appropriate lessons about the world as it is and about people living in their communities, perhaps even friends and family. The message is being LGBTQ is wrong and shameful, something that should be hidden away. LGBTQ Iowans should keep quiet and retreat to the shadows because they make old white conservatives uncomfortable. Their discomfort must be enshrined in state law. This is Iowa. So says the marketing campaign trying to get people to move here. Good luck. These bills are also designed to do far more than what their plain language indicates. Backers hope to spawn a chilling effect in public schools, making every educator think twice about discussing LGBTQ people and issues at any grade level. Otherwise, they risk being dragged before the school board to face accusations from the chorus of perpetual outrage egged on by our so-called leaders. Governor Kim Reynolds famously declared that in Iowa, we know the difference between boys and girls. We also know how to attack kids and make their lives miserable for political gain. 
Our once proud history of protecting civil rights is a page turner Republicans refuse to read. Now they're wielding the eraser and a big barrel of whitewash. Turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon from Joe Heller of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Man is sitting on the couch with his TV on, watching a weather forecast. January weather, bleak and gray today, dreary and grayer tomorrow, drab and grayest the next day. The TV repairman is behind the couch. He says, so what's the problem? And the woman says, our color TV doesn't have color. The first letter is from George Olmsted of Cedar Rapids. Iowans need school choice. The Iowa legislature is considering school choice legislation that would provide opportunities for more students to attend private schools. If your child's public school is performing poorly, school choice is just what you need. Using private organizations to provide public services is common and in most cases uncontroversial. Medicare recipients use private hospitals, for example. Students use publicly funded scholarships at private colleges. School choice, on the other hand, is controversial because public school teachers have so much political influence. They want to protect public schools for the pay and the extraordinary job security. If you're on the side of the teachers, then by all means, you should oppose school choice. If you're on the side of the students, however, you should let parents choose the best schools for their children. George Olmsted of Cedar Rapids. Next, Renee Schultz of Tipton writes, Tax Dollars for Communist Schools. I totally agree with the Gazette's January 14th guest column by Norman Sherman. Would the state be so willing to support a private Muslim school, an atheist school, a communist school? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Tax dollars are for public schools. Renee Schultz of Tipton. Next, Mike Schluckbeyer of Iowa City writes, Cole reduces funding debate to single issue. In her January 15th column, Althea Cole asks us to consider that public dollars already flow to private entities. And if that were the only argument against the educational voucher bill moving its way through the legislature, then she might have a point. She's right that public dollars often flow to private companies for better or worse. But there are typically regulations and oversight when they do so, or there should be. The voucher bill specifically includes an anti-regulation clause, meaning that private schools can vacuum up public money while continuing to discriminate against LGBTQ students or those who need educational accommodations. I'm all for considering multiple views on an issue, but reducing this to one, what Cole argues, isn't very honest. Mike Schluckebeyer of Iowa City. Next, Scott Byram of Iowa City writes, Education plan makes governor's intent clear. Governor Reynolds and her compatriots in the legislature have come up with a plan they say will improve both public and private schools. Briefly summarized, the plan is to reduce money available for one and increase funding for the other. Perhaps I'm just slow, but I don't see how that will work. Seems to me to be just another bit of Republican fantasy, similar to the tax cuts pay for themselves Republican dogma. The underlying fact here is that the vast majority of private schools in Iowa are Christian schools. I think the intent of their proposal is clear. Scott Byram of Iowa City. Next, Bradley Thomas of Monroe writes, Governor's plan will be devastating. I just wanted to say that I appreciate the information that Mr. Covington gave us, January 11th, whose priorities for Iowa, and that I am very concerned about this situation. I do not want my tax dollars being given to private schools. I want to see our public schools be number one in the nation again, like they were when I went to school. This is too important for our legislature to decide. Let the people of Iowa make the decision on a ballot referendum. This is another sad attempt by Republicans to privatize a public institution for profits. I'm tired of my tax dollars benefiting people that have more money than I do. I also believe that this idea is conflicting with the separation of church and state, as a large number of private schools are religiously affiliated. I have seven grandchildren that attend public school in Iowa. I believe if the governor's plan gets passed, it will be devastating for the future of public schools. Bradley Thomas Monroe, or Bradley Thomas of Monroe. And the final letter is from David Overby of Piasta. Finally, the end of public schools. Finally, we're going to get rid of public education. We don't need to have everyone educated, only the elite. We don't need educated workers. Anyone can run the robots which make everything now. We don't need workers, just bosses. Future leaders can go to expensive special education schools to learn how to boss. Getting rid of public schools gets rid of those silly school diversions like music, art, and sports. Think of the money saved by shuttering gyms and football fields. Too many kids go to school and college only to be the night manager of some fast food joint. Certainly the average worker doesn't need to be able to read and write. Machines do that. And teachers, arrogant part-timers who would be better suited for digging ditches. All those school staffers would be useful doing menial work. Menial work. Side benefit, we wouldn't need all those immigrants to do those jobs. Plato nailed it in about 375 BC when he considered only philosopher kings, not just anybody, to be worthy of leading. Future leaders would be chosen early by their rich parents to be schooled thusly to be philosopher kings. And in the 1848 Communist Manifesto, it was absurdly proposed that the state provide free education for all children in public schools. 
So clearly, public education is a communist plot to overturn the natural order of things where the rich dominate the poor. But we're waking up and finally destroying our outdated and useless public schools. David Overby of Piasta. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 22nd, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Feldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. On other notice, Janice R. Bennett, age 74, of Mechanicsville, died Wednesday, January 18th, an Iowa cremation of Cedar Rapids handling arrangements. James Landrum Parker, known as Lanny, passed away on January 17th. He was born September 4th, 1938. After attending University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Lanny returned to Union to be trained as the eventual manager of the family retail furniture business, Parker's Furniture Company. His brother, Skip Partner Part- Parker, partnered with him a few years later, and the two of them spent their careers working together, expanding the family business. Lanny was a member of the Boys Club of America, Rotary Club, Lions Club, Elks Club, and Kiwanis Club. He was also a member of the Little Theater in Union, where his favorite role to perform was Elwood P. Dowd in Harvey. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th, in the Chapel of Memories at Cedar Memorial, 4200 First Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Fern Schneider Carey, a beautiful soul, Fern, age 99, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully Thursday, January 19th, at the Dennis and Donna Olorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. Visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Wednesday, January 25th, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will occur at the funeral home at 11 a.m. Thursday, January 26th. Burial will follow at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Fern started at Square D and later went to work for Collins Radio for many years. She was always proud to share her Collins Radio clock number, 3130, with her family. In her later years, Fern attended Calvary Baptist Church in Cedar Rapids with her family and grew to adore her pastors at the church who would give her hugs whenever they saw her. Fern was a member of the Malta Chapter number 14 of the Eastern Star daughter of the Nile Shrine Auxiliary, VFW Auxiliary, past president of the Firefighters Auxiliary, Ladies Park Golf League, and served for many years as an election official. Betty Jean Sutton, born Betty Jean Glue, age 96, of Manchester, passed away on January 18th at the Good Neighbor Home in Manchester. She and her husband farmed near Delhi until Leonard passed away in 1974. And she later remarried Dick Sutton. While at the Garnard Center, Betty revived the Butterfly Garden after Dick's death. Betty continued to live there until 2013. She then moved to the Meadows in Manchester. Betty loved flower gardening, square dancing, and card playing. She did genealogy work for many years and also authored her own autobiography titled 92 Years with Betty. Memorial service, 11 a.m. Saturday, February 4th at First Evangelical Lutheran Church in Manchester with the Reverend Tony D. Ede officiating. Visitation, 9.30 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 4th, at First Evangelical Lutheran Church in Manchester. Private family inurement at a later date. Debbie Sue Fields, age 69, of Marion, passed away Thursday, January 19th, at the Views of Marion. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 24th, at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Celebration of Life service will be 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 25th at Brosh Chapel. Burial will be in Cedar Memorial Cemetery. Debbie worked in the dental field for over 20 years, ranging from family practices to the University of Iowa Dental College, and later retired from Rockwell Collins in 2018. Debbie enjoyed arts, crafts, sewing, painting, occasionally visiting the casino, downhill skiing, going on ocean cruises, and traveling to St. Martin's. Carrie Kent Stolba, age 70, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 19th at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Per his wishes, no funeral services will be held at this time. Carrie worked with the local 81 as a union insulator. He was a lifelong Iowa Hawkeyes fan and enjoyed cheering on the Minnesota Vikings. Margaret Laura Thony of Monticello passed away Monday, January 16th. A memorial service will be held at 2.30 p.m. February 4th at the First Presbyterian Church in Monticello. Visitation will begin at 1.30 p.m. Saturday at the church until the time of service. Afterward, we will gather in the church basement at 3 p.m. for coffee time, a routine pause in Margaret's days that she especially enjoyed. Margaret was a remarkably active, able 90-year-old up to her last breath. She loved planning road trips, learning new things, playing cards, reading, coffee time with dear friends, and being with family. She was a strong, knowledgeable, generous, independent woman who embraced life with enthusiasm every day until the end. 
Merlin Levi Stute, age 73, of Sholo, Arizona, formerly of Solon, passed away Thursday, December 15th. There will be no services or memorials. Sue Ann Ford, age 75, of Marion, passed away Saturday, January 14th, surrounded by family at Knapp Medical Center in Waslaco, Texas. In accordance with the family's wishes, cremation has taken place. A celebration of Sue's life is being planned for a later date. Sue worked at various local greenhouses. She also worked for Haycap, Lynn Co-op, and as a secretary for Kettleson's RV. For many years, she enjoyed traveling with James in their RV to the southern states of Florida, Arizona, and Texas. She loved her flowers and garden and was a talented and gifted artist. Sue mastered and taught many crafts, including gourd carving, basket making, jewelry, and card making. Irvin von Sprecken, age 88, of Dolan, died of Olin, died Tuesday, January 17th at Highland Ridge Care Center, Williamsburg, following a period of declining health. Graveside services will be held 1 p.m. Saturday, June 17th at Oakwood Cemetery, Monticello, with military honors. Getch Funeral Home of Monticello has taken Irvin and his family into their care. Irvin served in the U.S. Army from 1954 until 1956. He worked at the Iowa's Men's Reformatory, where he taught welding for Kirkwood College. And he had numerous patents, one for a fireplace grill and another for an aftermarket tailgate for trucks. Irvin had been very involved in the Olin community. He served on the school board and was a member of the Olin Community Club and a member of St. John Lutheran Church. He was an avid outdoors man, enjoying fishing, camping, and hunting. He received several awards for conservation farming and was a member of Jones County Ducks Unlimited. He enjoyed watching the Hawkeyes, game shows, and playing cards. John A. Henderson, known as Jack, age 96, of Charlotte, North Carolina, passed away December 23, 2022, in North Carolina. Jack served in the U.S. Army Air Force in the Pacific during World War II. He lived in Cedar Rapids for 30-plus years, working in sales for Lehigh Portland Cement and retired to Pinehurst, North Carolina with his wife. There he enjoyed many years of golfing and bowling, doing both into his 90s. A celebration of life will be held April 15th at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Cedar Rapids. Interment will follow at Cedar Memorial Cemetery. Memorials may be offered in honor of Jack to Westminster Presbyterian Church. Dolores M. Pilsner, age 85, of Robbins, known as D, died peacefully with her family by her side on Wednesday, January 18th in the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Funeral Mass, 11 a.m. Thursday, January 26th, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church. A rosary will be held Wednesday, January 25th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home at 4 p.m., followed by a visitation until 7 p.m. Burial, Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Vic and Dee owned and operated D&V in supply for 40 years. She was a member of St. Elizabeth Ann Catholic Church and Polka Club of Iowa. She loved spending time with her family and friends, reading, dancing, and gardening. Dee and Vic spent springs fishing in Minnesota. She was the fisherman of the two. They traveled most of the states and gambling for fun. Linda Charlene Marr, 78, of Shellsburg, passed away on Wednesday, January 18th at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Celebration of life services will be at a later date. Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center is caring for Linda and her arrangements. Linda enjoyed spending time with her friends and family. She enjoyed, enjoyed day trips to somewhere and traveling when she could. Deborah K. Schmidt, known as, known as Debbie, age 74, of Wichita Falls, Kansas, died peacefully on Monday, January 16th, at Tiffin House Assisted Living and Memory Care in Georgetown, Texas. She resided there since December of 2020 after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Besides spending time with her family and friends, Debbie enjoyed painting, sewing, knitting, tutoring her dogs, and spoiling her only grandchild. She was very involved with the First Christian Church of Wichita Falls and volunteered for the annual Coats for Kids drive done with the local elementary schools. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, May 20th at First Christian Church in Wichita Falls, Texas. Myron M. Moore, age 73, of Center Point, died Tuesday, January 17th at his home following a long illness. Public visitation will be 4 to 6 p.m. Tuesday, January 24th at White Funeral Home, Independence. Private graveside services will be held at a later date in Wilson Cemetery in Independence. Myron worked at Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids for nearly 40 years, retiring in 2005. He was a member of the IBEW Local 1362. Myron enjoyed watching sports of all kinds, especially NHRA races. Turning to the sports page in Iowa men's basketball, Unacceptable Loss for Hawks by Mike Loss of the Gazette in Columbus, Ohio. A defensive downer dashed Iowa's four-game men's basketball win streak. 
Ohio State, scoring 50 points in the paint, broke away from a tied game in the first minute of the second half for a 93-77 win over the Hawkeyes, 4-4 Big Ten and 12-7 overall. Very poor for performance by our team, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said on the Hawkeye Radio Network postgame show. Too many turnovers. We got just destroyed on the glass. Unacceptable today. Just not a good performance. We didn't play with any sense of intelligence today at all. The Buckeyes had a 36-29 advantage in rebounds. Iowa made 14 turnovers, leading to 15 OSU points. Freshman forward Bryce Sensabaugh scored a career-high 27 points in 26 minutes for the Buckeyes, 3-5, 11-8, who stopped their five-game losing streak. He's a tremendous shot maker, McCaffrey said in his post-game news conference. You've got to make him play defense, but he scores in a variety of ways. It's not just a three-point shooter or driver. He's got a terrific mid-range game. Sensabaugh is a potential NBA first-round draft pick this June, like Iowa's Chris Murray, who had 22 points. OSU coach Chris Holtman moved graduate transfer guard Isaac Likale and freshman guard Roddy Gale into the starting lineup for this game. Likale had 18 points, 10 rebounds, and 7 assists after scoring a total of 10 points over his previous 7 games. After making a 3-pointer for his first points, nearly all of Likale's points came from going to the basket. They just kept driving and backing a guy down. We didn't react to them, McCaffrey said. We were getting back cut. We're not physical enough, and it all broke down there. I thought Isaac's play was phenomenal, Ohio State coach Chris Holtman said. Three other Buckeyes scored in double figures. Philip Rebraca had 15 points and Aaron Ullis 12 for Iowa. The Buckeyes shot 56.3% from the field in the game and 64.7% in the second half. Getting a surplus of lay-ins and dunks made a high shooting percentage inevitable. Ohio State had a 12-0 first half run for a 25-15 lead, but Ohio cut it to 37-35 at halftime, despite not scoring a basket in the final 5-10 of the half. Ulis made a pull-up jumper on the Hawkeyes' first second half possession to tie the game, but a 9-0 run shortly thereafter gave the Buckeyes a cushion they couldn't surrender. This Iowa team is not going anywhere, Fox color commentator Jim Jackson said when the Hawkeyes trailed 62-53 with 10-54 left. He was correct, but not in the way he intended. Iowa never got closer than eight points after Jackson's proclamation. Iowa's next game is Thursday at Michigan State, 6 p.m. Central Time. We've got to be better, McCaffrey said. We'll be better in the next one. And Kirkwood's mule down, now down to four for 1,000 by Ryan Pligilkuli, correspondent in Cedar Rapids. Following a 112-27 win over Marshalltown Community College on Wednesday, Mule could count the number of wins he needs to reach 1,000 on one hand. On Saturday, in front of a packed Johnson Hall filled with approximately 400 spectators for Kirkwood's first annual Crowd the Corn event, the NCJAA D2's third-ranked women's basketball team, 18-1, defeated Iowa Lakes Community College 65-47, giving Mule career win number 996. I haven't really thought a whole lot about getting to 1,000 wins, Mule said. I'm sure I will this summer when everything kind of settles down. During the season, we're going. Now we're getting ready for Iowa Western. They're really good, and we're not ready for them, so that's on my agenda. Mule ranks second among active NCJAA women's basketball coaches and wins, trailing only Copaya Lincoln's Mississippi Gwyn Young, who recently reached the 1,000-win milestone on January 12th. While Young holds a narrow lead for total wins, Mule has done it more efficiently. This season is Mule's 34th as a head coach and Young's 47th. Mule holds an advantage in career-winning percentage, 996-165.854, to Young's 1,299.770. That's a lot of wins, I guess, Mule said with a chuckle. It's a lot of time sitting on the bench, coming to the gym, and having your wife put up with it. Kirkwood's leading scorer, Tasia Jordan, led the way Saturday. Jordan had 19 points on 7 of 10 shooting. You just can't teach what she has, Mule said. We try to go to her strength, and she's been really coachable. The admiration between Mule and Jordan is mutual. I'm more than blessed to be able to play with Coach Mule because he knows how to develop a player at each level they need to be at, Jordan said. As for Mule's quest for 1,000, he's already the GOAT, greatest of all time in my opinion, Jordan said. That would be an honor to make a little history for him. Mule is now just 11 wins shy of tying the all-time record for NJCAA wins, trailing David Craigle from Walter State of Tennessee, who holds the all-time record with 1,007. He will be inducted into Kirkwood's Hall of Fame on February 3rd. If you would have told me 25 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it, Mule said. Part of the deal is getting older, and if you've done some things, you get into the Hall of Fame. I'm glad they're kind of doing it before you get too old. I think that's a problem with some Hall of Fame. Sometimes people get health issues, and then they can't enjoy the experience. Kurt Ulrich writes a guest column in the Insight section. He lives in rural Jackson County. Sculpting new snowy life from the grays of winter. 
On a recent cold morning, I was awakened by the raspy calls of dozens of jet-black American crows, once again in a frenzy in a field in front of my house. I don't know why they gather here, and I try not to attach any meaning to it, though the scene of blackbirds swarming in front of skeletal trees up by the road feels like I've wandered onto the set of an old Hitchcock movie. Snow in ditches around here has turned black. My first thought was that microscopic residue from tire wear caused it. Wrong. The sooty blackness on top of snow and ditches comes from black Iowa topsoil swirling about from nearby farm fields, which is what a friend first suggested, a friend much brighter than I. A woman, of course. Have I mentioned how much I love women? A woman once said to me, talking to you is like talking to one of my girlfriends. That, my fellow travelers, is a compliment of the highest order. Men, take note. For just a little while, a week or so ago, the small amount of snow around here was perfect for making snow sculptures. I gave up on snowmen when I was 12, turning instead to snow people and snow animals. On this day, I wasn't wearing gloves, so I quickly threw together what I call my five-minute cat, one already returning to a watery state when I snapped the photo. Ashes to ashes. Some of you might properly correct the cat's name, Luna. I'm running headlong with this prose, as usual, not really sure if there's any point to be made, never sure where it's going. I conclude nothing, offer no advice, no melodrama, no admonitions, no politics, yet here we are, you and I, just waiting to meet, maybe on a quiet street, or in a busy grocery store, or at an adjoining table in a simple restaurant. Places where we can chat, share a moment or two of smiling sweetness, and despite likely never meeting again, warm ourselves away from our aloneness. Today at a nearby grocery, I handed a young cashier some cash, saying, Check my work. I'm a local high school grad. He laughed. Despite being many decades apart, we chatted briefly about our shared experiences. Then I said, Even if you didn't get a good education, I hope you had a good experience. He stopped, looked me straight in the eye, and said, I didn't have either one. I never know what to make of these encounters. Sometimes I think I should simply keep my mouth shut. However, these brief interactions with others often remind me that we never truly know or understand the lives of those we meet. Here in the bleak midwinter under a cold gray sky, it's a time for listening to sad music, and I've resurrected one of my favorites, a song written by Jamie Cullum and Clint Eastwood called Grand Torino. Performed on piano and sung by Cullum, the song gives me great pause, helping me to explore the beauty and subtlety of deep grief and intense longing, longing for the company of those who have gone before. The lyrics ache and whisper, your world is nothing more than all the tiny things you've left behind. And finally today, the time machine, a look back at people, places, and events in eastern Iowa. Woolworths, Cedar Rapids had changed largest store in Iowa before its closing in 1986 by Diane Fannin Langton, correspondent. A new five and dime store opened on a rainy July 2nd, 1902 at a double storefront at 217-219 First Avenue East in Cedar Rapids. The Woolworths opening got billing in the Gazette that day. An immense crowd of prospective purchasers surrounded the entrance for several hours before the establishment was in readiness to receive them, the paper reported. At one time, the store was so crowded that the manager was compelled to close the doors and deny admittance until those on the inside had been waited upon. The reporter speculated the crowd would have been twice as, twice as large if the weather had been nice. The store's manager, Walter M. Smith, was conscientious, as evidenced in an item Smith asked the Gazette to publish before the month was out. Last Saturday evening, three boys came into our place of business, and one of them purchased a five-cent ball. In changing the red ball, purchased for a white one, the clerk being present, I made the mistake of thinking that a ball had been stolen. I took two of the boys and detained them for a little while. I regret the mistake that I made more than I can express in words. The store was full of people, and I took the action I did without proper investigation or care, and I asked this space to make the correction and apology that it may reach those of the large number of customers who heard the boys wrongfully accused. Frank W. Woolworth conceived of the idea of a five-cent store in 1879 in Utica, New York. That one failed, but a few months later, it was followed by a five-and-ten-cent store in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that succeeded. Woolworth Associates opened other stores, and in 1912, the 596 stores merged into the F.W. Woolworth Company. The chain's first expansion to the west included the store in Cedar Rapids, Woolworth's number 836. In 1906, the popular store was remodeled and improved at the cost of $6,000, just under $200,000 in today's dollars. On May 19, 1916, the public was invited to visit the second new Woolworths that would be opening at 2nd Avenue and 2nd Street Southeast and listen to the music of the Ballheim Orchestra. Nothing was sold until the next day. Woolworths operated both stores until closing the 1st Avenue store in 1917. In 1939, a two-story addition was added to the Woolworths building under the supervision of a former West Liberty man, R.K. Johnson of Minneapolis, who was the district construction superintendent for the Woolworths stores. The addition offered a kitchen, air conditioners, a freight elevator, and a lounge for women. The store's entrance was widened and an 86-foot-long luncheonette counter added with stainless steel equipment. 
Wood floors were replaced with asphalt tile linoleum. The store expanded again in 1950, acquiring the space at 213 2nd Avenue Southeast and building on a vacant lot at the rear. Woolworths then occupied a quarter of the block with exception of the space holding the Dow's building. In 1956, a second Woolworths opened at the new Town and Country Shopping Center on 1st Avenue East at 36th Street. The downtown Woolworths made its final move in 1964 across the street to the United Fire and Casualty Building, 117 2nd Street Southeast. It took the company seven months and $400,000 to prepare the 30,000 square feet of sales space on the main floor and basement, and another 11,000 square feet for offices, stock rooms, a bakery, and utility rooms on the second floor before its grand opening August 25, 1965. The new Woolworths was the largest in Iowa and one of the largest in the country. It featured two crystal balustrade escalators, a main floor coach light room restaurant that seated 124, a signature lunch counter, and 48-inch tall letters on two sides of the building in the company's signature red. The popularity of five-and-dime stores waned in the 1970s with the growing popularity of malls. The Cedar Rapids Woolworths, after more than 80 years of operation, closed after Christmas 1986. By the end of 1993, the company had closed all of its Iowa stores, including those in Clinton, Dubuque, and Keokuk. The chain's remaining 400 stores closed in 1997. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville with occasional interruptions from my dog, Harley. Harley is a 22-pound, medium-sized black rat terrier mix. She's getting older, and she seems to need to go outside more often than she used to do. Thank you for listening. Remember that you can find recordings of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments and thank you for listening.